Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Well, today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 33. This is the word of God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful pictures that you've given to us throughout Scripture that help us understand a little better the love that you have for us. We ask that you'd show us that through your word this morning. Bless my words and help me to stay out of the way of your message. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Marriage. (laughs) Marriage is what brings us together today. (laughs) Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. The 1987 movie, The Princess Bride, tells the story of a farmhand in the Middle Ages who secretly falls in love with the daughter uh, of the farmer, Buttercup. Eventually, Wesley, the the farmhand, has to leave to find work, but he promises to come back for her. When he does return, he ends up having to fight for her because she's become engaged to the prince against her will. Spoiler alert, sounds like 90% of you have seen this movie, Uh, but Wesley and Buttercup uh, end up together and they live happily ever after. Don't watch this at Movie on the Rocks at Red Rocks because everyone quotes it at the same time. You're never going to understand the movie. (laughs) Um, Even in an 80s quasi-romantic rom-com, we can see the gospel. In every love song, we see the roots of God's love for us. Every story of a champion winning back his beloved reflects what God has done for us. Now, if I do my job today, you should walk away from today's sermon seeing clearly that not only is the institution of marriage a reflection of the gospel, but its very purpose is to reflect God's love and the pursuit of his beloved, you and me. That is the purpose of marriage. It's not just kind of like what God has done for us, but marriage is for that. Today's passage contains instructions on how to behave in your marriage so that it was function so that it functions as it was intended to. So, we are to reenact the most beautiful facet of the relationship between God and humans through our participation in this the very first human institution. So one caveat here, we're, not, we're only talking about roles within marriage today. 
We are not talking about women qua women and men qua men. Adam was created first and has authority within his relationship to his wife, Eve. But Eve was created not from the foot and not from the head of Adam, as we heard last week, but from his side, signifying human equality. Women are made in the image of God in exactly the same sense as men are made in the image of God. Women display different characteristics of God, like beauty, gentleness, and the cultivation of life. Men display other characteristics, like leadership and strength. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon by Lars on biblical manhood and womanhood, this is, that is very much a prerequisite for this sermon. So, it may seem like I'm ignoring gender altogether uh, outside of marriage, and I am. Uh, but that's because we treated it last week. So go back and listen to Lars if you haven't heard that one. Point one in your outlines is wives submit to your own husbands. Look with me at verses 22 through 24 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When I realized that I was assigned this particular passage on Mother's Day, I was a little perplexed. I said, Lars, you want me to tell mothers on Mother's Day that they are to submit to their husbands? So he very rightly rebuked me and said, there's a second half to the sermon. Just tell them to hold on. (laughs) So uh, wives, if your husbands underperform for you today, you can come and see Lars. (laughs) The Apostle Paul here writes with authority, inspired scripture, And he makes these unequivocal commands to wives and husbands later within the context of marriage. These commands are not optional. These commands are not easy. And they are not what we want to do. This command that we hear first hits a modern American ear sharply. Submit to your husband. So... Let's examine exactly what submission is and what it means um, according to Scripture here. Submission is a willing obedience of a person to the commands and leadership of a person or organization exercising rightful authority over them. Let me read that again. Submission is a willing obedience of a person to the commands and leadership of a person or organization exercising rightful authority over them. Submission, hear this, is not subjugation. It is not a statement of inferior worth. Rebecca McLaughlin writes on culture and the gospel, um, and she has a PhD from Cambridge University. She writes this about gender and creation. This is helpful background as we look at gender and marriage. Genesis 1, she, she writes, God creates humans, male and female, in his image. In the ancient Near East, this, this language would have signaled 
royalty. To be a woman, first and foremost, is to be made in the image of God. She continues, the equality of men and women is reinforced when the creation of humans is retold in Genesis 2. God makes the man first, but declares it not good for him to be alone and plans to make a helper fit for him. Now, helper might sound demeaning, but in the rest of the Bible, McLaughlin points out, it typically describes God himself. So it clearly cannot signal inferiority. By the way, where does our help come from? Our help comes from him, the maker of heavens and earth. God is described as our helper in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in multiple Psalms, and in the book of Hosea. Marriages, though, are not meritocracies. The leader of marriage is the husband according to the pattern of creation and according to the teachings of Christ and according to the inspired word of God. And we're going to see why that is. Wives, you, you may be a gifted, charismatic, and visionary leader. But within the context of your marriage, it is your husband's role to lead. Yours is a different role, and it is no less significant. We're not given this command, however, with the expectation that wives will blindly follow their husbands in all circumstances without question or input. We are given a reason for the wives' submission. And that reason is that your submission to your husband is a picture of the gospel. It is an opportunity for you to act out the church's obedience to Christ. Look up at verse 1 of chapter 5 of Ephesians here. Therefore, verse 1 says, be imitators of God. Well, how does your submission to your husband in your marriage imitate God? When would God submit to anyone? As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ submits to the will of the Father. Same word. The Spirit submits to the will of the Son. Same word. You cannot argue that the Spirit is less God than Jesus, or that Jesus is less God than God the Father. Each has their own role within the Godhead, which roles include submission. There is a structure of authority that operates within the Godhead. And Jesus says as much in his ministry. Looking back at our text, it says, Paul, uh, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is another affirmation that women are not to submit to men generally. And wives are not to submit to another person's husband only to their own. One scholar pointed out that the word your own is the Greek word idios, from which we get the English word idiom. An idiom, a characteristic that someone has that's unique to them. It is also the source for the word idiot. 
So wives, submit to your idiot husband. Now this submission, we're told immediately after the command, is meant to reflect the church's submission to Christ, as I've said. It's a voluntary submission initiated by the wife. Paul talks to the wife here. He does not talk to the husband. This submission is not to be demanded by the husband. It is to be initiated by the wife. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to your authority. No, it is a voluntary, it is a proactive, it is a joyful submission to the authority of the husband within the marital context. Paul's exhortation to wives here and his later command to husbands to love their wives is an undoing of the curse from Genesis 3. It is a blueprint for how to redeem marriage from the original sin of Adam and Eve, and to restore marriage to what it was created to be, a reflection of God's gospel pursuit of his beloved. In Genesis 3, when Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate the fruit, Adam failed to lead his wife. Adam followed her and her initiative to disobey God. Accordingly, God's curse upon wives is that they will give birth in great pain and that their desire shall be contrary to your husband, it says, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3. Most conservative commentators agree that this is Eve's desire will be to rule the household. But her husband will sin against her in this very same way and in fact dominate her in their marriage. Adam and all husbands in our fallen state will not exercise headship in a gentle and responsible way, apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we as husbands will tend to either dominate our wives on one hand, or we will abdicate and become passive, ceding our household leadership to our wives. This is one way, with respect to the, the woman's curse, this is one way in which Oscar Wilde was right on the money when he said there are two tragedies in life, one is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. The way to reverse the curse is for husbands and wives to fulfill their roles within marriage how they were intended to be. When this happens, we accurately reflect God's pursuit of his beloved. Just as men have always been and will always be drawn to women, almost magnetically. So God is drawn to his people. Our response to God's pursuit of us should be a joyful acceptance of his love, which he has expressed throughout the entire course of history in his pursuit of his people over millennia. And in spite of our rebellion and unfaithfulness, he continues to pursue us. Our response as his chosen people, the church, his beloved, his bride, should also be to follow his leadership and to obey the commands of Christ. What did Jesus say? If you love me, obey my commands. But as he is the perfect husband to the church, following his leadership is easy. What did he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
This should be a pleasure. Likewise, in a godly marriage, the wife's submission to her husband should be a delighted response to the husband's loving initiative and pursuit of her. But you can't have one without the other. It is very difficult to have gospel submission to your husband if your husband doesn't lead you in love. Which leads us to point two. Husbands, love your wives. As we think about what's required of us as humans, what's required of us by God? Many people like to quote the book of Micah. They like to go to Micah 6.8. You know, O oh man, what is required of you. Right? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I've even got that on a t-shirt. Look, that might cut it if you're a single guy. But husbands, buckle up. One couple in a movie was having an argument when the superhero husband was trying to support his case for what he wanted to do. He had to cancel their evening plans and grab his equipment and go save the city. His wife rightly replied, I am your wife. I am the greatest good you are ever going to do. <laughs> Look with me at verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Gentlemen, this is the greatest good you're ever going to do. Because in loving your wife, you're imitating the greatest love story ever told. We're instructed as husbands to love our wives just as much as and just like Christ loves the church. Certainly enough to die for her, enough to suffer for her, enough to pursue her across time, across state and national borders and across phases of her womanhood. This command, gentlemen, are you listening? This command is not a command to feel a certain way about your wife. This is a command to do certain things out of your covenant faithfulness to her. Yes, covenant faithfulness. You made a covenant when you entered into the covenant of marriage. How we feel about our spouses will change over time and can change day to day, hour to hour, based on what you had for breakfast. 
but how we act as husbands toward our wives must never change. We are commanded to lead her in a sacrificial, tender, encouraging, and edifying way, respecting the covenantal promises that we've made. And she is supposed to be holier because of it. Very practically, you'll see in your outline a list of things you can do, husbands, to love your wives like Christ loves the church. Some of you will be helped by a list. I am generally helped by having an example to follow, to look to. Either way, you'll get both. But the closer you look at Christ, the easier it is to imitate him in your marriage. The first item on the list is sacrifice for her. Our example in all of these will be to look to Jesus and what he did and what he does for us. So what did Jesus sacrifice for us? Look, it's easy to skip to the end and just say, well, he gave it all. But there's more than that. First, before anything, Jesus gave up heaven. We cannot fully understand the joy that he gave up, being in perfect and eternal unity with the Father and the Spirit in a place unmarred by sin. We'll have a good day now and then with our friends. We'll have a day of bliss on vacation with our families, maybe. But we still won't get close. Husbands, imagine before you were married, living in Hawaii with a couple of your bros. Perfect weather. You're completely provided for. You have no want in the world, and you have no needs. You live in paradise. And then you learn of some woman who desperately needs you, who lives in Afghanistan. Imagine, uh, imagine how long and how hard you'd have to think to get on a plane to go to Afghanistan to rescue this woman. That's enough in itself. But what if you knew that once you got there, she would initially be happy to see you, and then she would cheat on you repeatedly? What if she then accused you wrongly to a third party of some crime, and you were beaten, tortured, humiliated, spat upon, and killed for some crime you didn't commit in the backwoods of Afghanistan? I don't know about you, but I'd probably just order another Mai Tai and forget about it. How familiar are you with the story of Hosea and Gomer? Hosea is a minor prophet in the Old Testament where God commanded the prophet Hosea to marry the prostitute Gomer and have children with her. Start a family. Settle down with a prostitute. Hosea obeyed. And Hosea was faithful to Gomer. But Gomer returned to prostitution. Hosea then had to buy his wife back out of prostitution. Now, God commanded Hosea to name his and Gomer's children Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. And that will be significant in a moment. Listen to, here to what God says as he draws the picture of his love for his church as he talks to Hosea about 
his love for his people. Therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What a beautiful picture of God's enduring faithfulness to us, a people constantly wandering around in spiritual adultery. And he takes us away from our vices, away from our sin, away from our desires, into the wilderness. He speaks to us tenderly and provides for us. He plants vineyards for her in the wilderness. He is our perfect husband. Even when we utterly fail to obey his commands, fail to submit, and fail to be faithful to him. Let me pause for a moment and just say something very briefly about divorce. Jesus taught that if your spouse has been unfaithful to you, you may divorce. I'm not saying you have to stay with someone who has been unfaithful to you. If you're in a hard place, meet with the elders, meet with counselors. Um, But what I'm saying by quoting Hosea here and bringing this in is that we are to imitate the type of love that God has for us as his people. We, as a people, are unfaithful to him corporately and individually, constantly. And his love persists. God has done much more for us than leave paradise. To continue the metaphor, um, I already said that part. Point B. Point B, bless her toward holiness. Husbands, you're responsible for the spiritual condition of your wife. Your loving sacrifice for your wife is not just for the sake of sacrificing. You're not just giving stuff up to give it up. You're not just giving stuff up because, well, Jesus said to do that, and that's kind of what he did, and so I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow his example. Yes, good. But the other half of that is for your wife's holiness. Jesus did what he did for us so that we could be holy like him. Do you see that in our text? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her in the washing of water with the word. Jesus gave himself up for her so that we would be holy. The only way that we can be made holy as a people is to appropriate his righteousness. It's by covering our sin with the bloody robes of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can be united with God. That's what he came to accomplish. Motivated by his love, yes, but to accomplish our holiness so that we can be united with him. 
Brothers, we are to be zealous for, to earnestly seek, to pursue our wives' holiness. We cannot do this, of course, unless we are pursuing our own holiness. But that's the wonderful thing about human marriage is that you can do it together. But husbands, brothers, you must initiate. You have to start it. You are responsible for the spiritual condition of your wife. Discuss the Bible. Discuss God and theology with your wife. You don't have to get an MDiv. Just read the Bible with her and pray. We are to wash our wives in the word of God. Did you see that? So stop watching so much TV. TV was bad in the 80s and 90s. Now it's horrible. Now, I'm preaching this to myself too. I, I, I need to read more at the end of the day and not just watch TV. Sometimes I just don't have it in me, so I have to watch a Seinfeld or a Parks and Rec or something to wind down. But find some books that are easy to read, that are short. Don't look at reading a book as something on a checklist that you have to do. It's good for you and it's enjoyable. Find a book that you enjoy to read, even if it's really short. Point C, cherish her and praise her beauty, especially today. Song of Solomon always felt a little bit out of place to me, being included in the Bible. I don't know about you. I admit, I don't spend a lot of devotional time reading about the tower of the bride's neck and things. But commentator James Hamilton helpfully points out that there are two reasons that we have Song of Solomon in the Bible. First, it is to show how God feels about his bride, about his church, about us. That's how he feels about us. He, he is the king husband in that book. And the second is to inspire us in our own marriages by example. I like that. Listen to, listen to this from chapter 4. It's not one of the parts that's going to make you blush. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. God has pursued his church with this passion for thousands of years, and he does not let up. And this is how he feels about us. Husbands, we are cherished, we are valued, we are pursued by our groom, Christ. And we are called to reflect that same pursuit, that same cherishing, that same value in our marriages. Look, this might look different in your marriage than it does in mine. Shana, uh, her love language is quality time. So if I'm going to pursue her, I need to spend time with her. Other, uh, other gifts and, and words of encouragement and other love languages might be relevant in your, in your marriage. But first of all, find it out. And second, prioritize that. Find a way to speak to her in her love language. Lots of great books on that. Point D, provide for her. 
I won't say a lot here, but God is our provider. It should not be a burden for us to provide for our wives, husbands. This should be a joy, not because of your career choices and not because of the job specifically that you've chosen, but it's because of who you're working for. In later weeks, we'll hear Paul's exhortation to first century slaves, where he says it's a joy to them. Even slavery can be a joy because they are to work heartily as though their master were God. That's the attitude that they're to take. If that's helpful to you, you can take that too. When God pursues his church, he's not sending others to do the work. He does the work himself. He didn't send an angel or some really pious dude to come and teach and die for us. He did the work himself. He was the one who created. He was the one who taught Adam how to live. He was the one who gave the law to Moses and showed him his glory. He was the one who talked to the prophets. He was the one who made the trip to earth. He was the one who grew up learning how to be human from his own creatures. He was the one who taught, who guided, who waited. He was the one who was baptized, who was transfigured. He was the one who was arrested, who was tortured, who was spat on, who was murdered. He did the work. He didn't make us try to close the distance to him. He closed the distance to us after doing what? After taking the initiative. Men, working is part of that pursuit of our wives, regardless of whether she can or does also work. The excellent wife in Proverbs 31 works. She's got a couple of side hustles, at least. Our providing is part of our pursuit of, our care for, and our leadership of our wives. And we are to imitate God's providence for us in our marriages. Two more. Point E, forsake all others. You remember that old hymn that goes something like, um, God, you're faithful pretty much all the time. You've done a pretty good job. When God chooses his bride, first Israel as an example, and now all who trust in Jesus sacrifice for their sins in his lordship. When God chooses his bride, he is not choosing others. This point overlaps with the doctrine of election. He, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world to follow him. It's not just that he knows who will choose him. It's that he has chosen us. And by, not, and by choosing us, he has not chosen or forsaken others. By choosing Israel, for example, he specifically did not choose the Amalekites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Perizzites. When we get, when we get married, we make promises to each other publicly. On February 14, 2009, at Littleton Bible Chapel, I promised to love, comfort, and keep Shana, forsaking all others, and to remain true to her as long as we live. We both promised to forsake all others, choosing only to be partnered with each other. As we fulfill these lifelong promises to each other on a daily basis, we reflect God's faithfulness to us in a very 
real sense. Again, this is another way that we are reenacting the gospel story in our homes, in our marriages. When we take out the trash, when we pay our taxes. Husbands, this means you don't regularly text your ex-girlfriends. It means you don't read Maxim magazine. It means you don't think lustfully of other women. Men, if you have an issue with pornography, there are resources for you, including Ray Ortland's book, The Death of Porn. If you want to stay married, take action immediately, because that counts as not forsaking all others. Point F, forsake yourself. Listen to Philippians 2 on this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but rather... He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I was recently having lunch uh, with an old friend. We got to talking about marriage. And uh, he told me that he was kind of having trouble asserting himself um, in his marriage and showing initiative. Um, You know, he had been, been deceived into thinking that forsaking himself meant not taking initiative and not, not having an opinion on things, and just saying, well, you know, whatever you want, honey. This actually puts the onus of leadership. When we do this, what do you want to do on Saturday? Oh, I don't know. Whatever you want to do, honey. That actually puts the onus of leadership on your wife. And in trying to forsake himself, my friend had actually accomplished the opposite of his calling, to initiate and to pursue. Christ took the initiative to humble himself. He took the form and the posture of a servant and displayed servant leadership. He forsook the things that he would have positively wanted to do, staying in perfect unity in the Trinity in heaven. And he saw us as a more valuable thing than staying there. Husbands, forsake yourselves. Leave behind your childhood. Leave behind your mother and father and cleave to your wife. Leave behind the games you'd rather play or the hobbies you'd rather do. Find a common passion with your wife, even if you adopt one of hers. Love your wife as your own body. You two are one flesh. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as our passage says. Be satisfied in your wife, in her company, in things you know that she likes to do. Actively suggest and carve out time to do the things that she enjoys. Husbands, all these things that we have to do, A through F, have two things in common, and I alluded to this before. We must take the initiative and we must lead in love. For most of us, we don't strike that balance very well. I tend to not initiate. 
I am better at collaborating than I am at leading. That's just my personality. But in my marriage, I at least have to get the ball rolling. I need to take the first step. Husbands, it's our job to initiate. The other side is we have to lead in love. Others might tend to have zero problems taking initiative. You're, you're there. You're the first one on the mountain. You might have all the great ideas. You're very disciplined. Your follow-through might be passionate. But Scripture warns us against this dominating leadership, the Frank Sinatra school of leadership, my way. It, it is not to be so with you. And Paul wrote to Timothy, it is not to be so with you when, those, when leaders dominate over those that they lead. We are to lead with love and gentleness. Remember the tenderness that God promised to have toward his wayward bride in Hosea? How he gently called his prostitute wife out of her lifestyle, out into the wilderness where she could start anew and he planted vineyards for her? Think of the tender rebukes the Holy Spirit gives us through his word through our brothers and sisters. Just as God knows our weaknesses and tenderly corrects us when we err, so we husbands are to take the initiative to tenderly lead our wives on to holiness. We must live between those two extremes of passivity and domination. Guys, this isn't new. This has been around since Genesis 3. Where was Adam when Eve chatted up the the serpent? He was right there. He was within arm's reach, able to reach the fruit. So he was pretty close. He probably heard what was going on. He was passively letting his wife be lured away from God. He didn't take the initiative. He failed. And the wife's curse is that she'll desire to lead the family in response. And in response to that, the husband will dominate over her or domineer. Right from the beginning, we see this in Genesis. You're going to tend to be one or the other, and you might even do both. So we are called to lead, to take the initiative, with love. Initiate, and then follow through with gentleness. Step out first with direction, and then invite input on the details. Look, in closing, husbands and wives... Our last verse here is, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Reflect the gospel to each other. Wives, your husband cannot lead if they don't have the room to lead. You have to give them some space to initiate. And if this isn't going on in your household right now, it'll take some time to adjust. Have that conversation. Rather, husbands, initiate that conversation and then invite input gently. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the institution of marriage that you've given to us. You gave this to us to reflect how you feel toward us. It was not good that man was alone one of, and it had to be, partially, because he didn't reflect what you have done for us. It had to be that it was incomplete. He needed 
a complement. He needed that other half. Lord, this marriage that you have given to us, this institution, the way that it works when it works rightly is so beautiful and it so rightly reflects what you've done for us as a race, as a race of humans. Lord, thank you for this picture. May we all be encouraged to imitate our role within that. In your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you.